Welcome to Bethel Cleveland's Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy today's message. For more information on this podcast or how to get connected, go to BethelCleveland.com. Hey, open your Bibles if you could. We're going to look at a scripture in Joshua. As you know, about a month ago, it's actually been four weeks since I spoke here, various things on the calendar, and I uh, feel a little bit out of shape right now, you know, but uh, I'm going to get back in quick. But uh, we, I initiated for the year possessing the land, that we are possessing the land, which we know if you've been around here a while, you read your Bibles, it's Joshua 1. So we're going to look at a few uh, chapters in Joshua throughout this year, and we're going to preach on, I'm going to preach on different topics as well as our team, but we're going to focus on the overarching meta-narrative of our conversation is about possessing the land, moving forward, being assertive in our Christian beliefs, being assertive in changing environments that are around us for the people that are, are need to benefit from it that the power of the kingdom of God and Jesus Christ himself is the most life-changing thing you could ever encounter. Cindy and I were watching a Jordan Peterson uh, video last night. <clears throat> I forget what it's called, but there's a bunch of them on YouTube. And it was about uh, uh, his, his uh, pursuit of the Lord. He's just a brilliant man out of Canada, out of Toronto. And I've been following him for a number of years since his best-selling book four or five years ago. And uh, just love his videos. He is so smart. And yet he's, he, he can't fully identify yet with, with Christ. He really, he says he's, he's following God, hoping that he really exists. This is, he's a very smart guy. And as he articulates, he's emotionally charged because of things that have been going on in his life. And, and what I believe is the Holy Spirit moving on this man. I think, I think God is really touching him in a very powerful way, but he talks a lot about culture and talks a lot about how the separation in culture to pull us away from really being assertive. Everything that's happened in the past five to 10 years, in many ways over the past 40 to 50 years, have been to silence people, particularly in freedom-loving countries, about their commitment to Jesus Christ. So evangelism has dropped off the radar in a lot of places, particularly Western countries, because we don't want to interfere with someone. We don't want to invade their world. Let me tell you, there, people are really actually wanting their world invaded. I was at Costco's yesterday. It's, it's what we do on our day off. We go to Costco's, you know, and try to spend a little money. And uh, go to Costco's, and I'm looking at, I don't know, an exercise machine. I turn around, and this lady's pushing her cart down the aisle. And she comes up to me, and she, I do not know the lady, the lady, obviously, after talking to her, does not know me. And uh, she just came up to me and said, you know, my, my arm is hurting really bad, like right here. It feels very hard right there in my arm. And I'm thinking, like, do I have a Costco outfit on? What's, you know, or, or, we don't sell that here. But, you know, I didn't do that because I've spent a couple years now being uh, assertive with believers in the RUAJF, are you a Jesus follower? And so I just started a conversation with her like she's someone from the church. And I said, well, you know, I can pray for you. We've seen a lot of people healed of things like that. She goes, what do you mean? And I said, well, it's, it's the power of Jesus Christ, and we engage with him. And he kind of, she didn't know what to say. I mean, it, it was not in her world. I don't even know why she even asked me that, you know. But I thought, well, you know, I'm going to be assertive. I'm going to cross over the River Jordan here. I'm going to cross over, and I said, I said uh, let me pray for you. I didn't ask for the uh, privilege of praying for her. I realized she needed another level of assertiveness there. 
uh, something she needed. She just didn't know it. And I said, would you let me pray for you? And she goes, well, I, I, I guess, you know. And, and I began to pray, open eyes, didn't get weird, didn't get religious about it. I just pointed at it. I didn't touch her at all. I pointed at her part of the arm and I said, in the name of Jesus. Now she had eye contact with me constantly because she's, she's fascinated by this. This has not happened to her in Costco before, I can almost guarantee you. <laughs> or maybe anywhere. And I just prayed. And I said, that's it. I, I prayed in faith. I said, the power of Jesus' name, I believe that even while you're here, by the time you get up to the cashier, maybe I'll see you up there. I didn't. Uh, maybe I see you up there. Uh, I believe that God's gonna begin to touch your arm right there and you're gonna feel better. And she goes, oh, okay. And she got her little cart and took off to the next aisle, probably for some financial blessing or something. I don't know. But uh, I thought, that's the, I think that's the first time in my life, I have had people come up to me at like Panera and stuff and say, are you a believer? I, I could just tell by what you were saying or I, when I heard your voice or things like that. And usually they're Christians. This is the first person that I do not believe was a Christian that just came up to me randomly and, and, and told me their need. And it was a Jesus moment. It was one of the moments I thought, I like this. I could just go hang out at Costco's. <laughs> Clean up on aisle seven. Pastor Steve Witt's there to deal with your stuff. I mean, that could work. So, uh, so anyway, that's what I did this week. And uh, it, it ties in, what, I was reading a Paul Manwaring. Paul Manwaring's on our church board here. He's also a part of the executive team, the senior team at, at Bethel Redding, our mothership. And uh, he's been a friend for years, probably since, I don't know, 06, 07, somewhere like that. He wrote something on his Facebook page today. I just want to read you real quick. Secularism, we all know what secularism. It's a, it's the religion of secular, really. A secularism expects me to love those that I don't agree with. That, and that love is a, you know, in the Greek, there's, there's uh, three to five different words that, are, that we translate love. Uh, the Greeks are much more precise in their love. And so they have, the, they have the word phileo or filio. And it's where we get our word for the city, Philadelphia, actually, brotherly love. And it's a brotherly love, casual bros, sisters together, you know. Uh, and that's great. Uh, but secularism expects me to love those I don't agree with. In other words, be, be friends with them or, or, or co-laborers or whatever. Whereas Jesus teaches me to love agapeo, my enemies. Agape love is, is not, uh, it does not have to have agreement with what a person believes. Sometimes Christians, church in, in Western, in America, let's say America, the church in America has separated ourselves from people because we do not agree with their lifestyle. And, I, and that's the filet of love. Like, I can't be friends with them because they, you know, they're not my people or whatever. Jesus never thought that way. Jesus went out with agape love, which is a God kind of love. It's the kind of love that God has that is imparted to us when we are born again. When you're born again, you get, you get plugged in with a higher love, a love that can actually love somebody even if you do not agree with them. And so Paul, the Apostle Paul from Windsor, England, says this. He says, <laughs> Paul Manwaring, he says this, phileo requires shared values. Agapeo is unconditional. 
The agape love of God gives man what God knows is best for man, not necessarily what man desires. So when I prayed for this woman at Costco's yesterday, I, I had no uh, spiritual attraction to her. Like, oh, I felt compassion for her. Until she asked me and I turned to her and I, I engaged in a love, because I'm, I'm at Costco's. I, 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 I want to be a little bit, you know, uh, I want to disappear when I go to Costco's and just hang out and get a few samples and uh, just enjoy the moment, you know. Uh, maybe get a little piece of pizza on the way out. And that's, that's my Costco experience. But this woman's there and I'm thinking, you know, I mean, honestly, I'm as bad as the rest of us, you know. I think like, oh, that's a bad moment, you know. And people are going to wonder why I'm talking to this lady. Where's Cindy? You know, all these things are going through my mind. But it kicked in. It's as if I was put on like a glove by God. And the love of God for that woman came upon me and I felt compassion. I saw things about her life I did not bring up, did not mention. I didn't want to freak her out. But I, I, I felt things for her that I wouldn't normally feel for a complete stranger. That is agape love. It is a gift from heaven. It really is. And it will help you in situations. That's why the love of God is so important above and beyond everything else. So Paul, Paul Manwaring says this, when someone I don't agree with judges my love for them on the basis of failing to accept their values. You get that? You can love someone without accepting their values. Without accepting their values, they are asking me for phileo love, which I neither can nor am I required to give. There's a higher love. And so you say, I, I can't talk to my son or daughter. I can't talk to my mom or dad, my brother, sister, my neighbor, because they're Republicans or they're Democrats or they're, you know, they're for this person or that person. You are missing an important part of the love of God that actually transcends all temporal things and loves people right where they are. And that very thing is the only thing that can penetrate this culture is the love of God. None of us are that awesome. Turn to the person next to you and say, you're not that awesome. <laughs> Sorry, it sounds like a bad confession, but it's true. But when God in you emerges, that's kind of awesome. Because it will go beyond your political ideas, upon, go beyond whether you've been vaccinated or not vaccinated, or what kind of mask, is it a cloth mask or N95, and why aren't you wearing a mask? Why are you wearing a mask? I mean, back and forth and back and forth, and you're part of an insurrection, and do you believe in January 6th? And we go on and on and on and on and on. I, you know, I, I, I'm so happy today because Facebook, when I got up, said, you've been on social media? 42 minutes less than last week. <laughs> it's like, mind your own business. I felt a little bit proud for a minute. Like, okay, I'm bringing down a giant. I'm bringing down a wall in my life. I'm crossing over. So here's the verse we want to look at here in Joshua 1. By the way, you know, I was thinking about the 70s this week. I listen to a lot of 70s music on Sirius Radio when I'm driving around. So I'm programmed constantly with, with love songs from the 70s. Some of them not real good, but there are some that are pretty good. And I was thinking about it, and I thought, now in the 70s, give this old man a moment here, but in the 70s, when I was a teenager and a young man, you know, there were things that, like, if you had a disagreement with someone, you could just, like, you could just say, 
there's a word we had that you could just use, and it kind of was a neutralizing word like, I love you. It was almost like a spiritual word that you could speak in the middle of anything that you felt like was starting to boil up. You just said this word, and it, it, it just brought everything down to a common level. And you just had to say it in a very calm, peaceful way. You know what it was? Cool. Yeah, I don't know about this Nixon guy. Cool. Just eradicates it right there. What do you think? Cool. It's cool. I dig it. Now it's 60s. Anyway, 70s, cool. Cool has withstood the test of time. Try to use it. We also had hand signals. I know you have hand gestures. That you shouldn't be using. But there was one made popular. Actually, it was switched in the 60s and 70s from the sign of victory out of World War II to peace. We used to do it all the time. Someone get a big argument, we just go. Bow your head in a place of vulnerability. Hold up the peace sign. Now, if you say cool and give the peace sign at the same time, it's, a, it's nuclear. It's an atomic bomb. Cool. I get it, man. You always have to walk around back in the 70s. We call it like your stone now, but it wasn't what it was about. It was about, I'm cool. I'm cool. Even the way people walked as a teenager, I learned quickly. It's just a saunter. It's like, yeah, cool. I'm not in a hurry to go anywhere. There's nowhere to go. There's no Starbucks. There's no Costco. At least not in America. So you just kind of go around, cool, let your hair grow a little bit longer. We should have a 70s week here at the church sometime. <laughs> All the old people are like, let me get my cane. Yes, that's right. That's right, 70s week. I'll try to grow my hair out. Joshua 1 says this, after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, it came to pass. Now remember, Joshua is moving into Moses' place. So Moses has died over here. Joshua is about to cross over where Moses was at 40 years ago, but never got to do that. And he couldn't go into promises of God because of the unbelief of his generation. And all the moms and dads had to die in the wilderness. The Bible is pretty graphic about it. It said their bodies fell in the wilderness. I mean, you know, it, it was horrible, but it was the key to their next spot. And may I just mention, I've been studying some Catholic theology lately because I, I found this book I really like and it expresses so well some of the things that Catholics do so well. I, I, anytime you want to sit and have coffee and talk to me about it, I understand Catholic history. I understand that the Catholic Church was not real great at certain times throughout history. And you could argue what condition it might be in now, but what it is worldwide is not necessarily what it is locally. And so there are expressions. I could say about the charismatic church, Pentecostal church, evangelical church, all churches. But there's certain things that Catholics do and know that are actually better than what some of us in evangelical circles. They believe in the five aspects of the incarnation. And the incarnation is amazing because it's Christ, God in the flesh expressed through Jesus Christ. It's such a powerful thing to understand because it's not just what Christ did, as amazing it is, but he laid out a pattern in his incarnation 
for us to follow saying there will be times in your life, I could prove it scripturally, if we had time, I don't, it's not where I'm going, but just to throw this in the ring right now, we always know as evangelicals the death, burial, and resurrection, the DBR. Death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He died, he was buried, he resurrected. Woo! We'd all love that, you know. And that resurrection power is still alive today. I mean, we love that too. But Catholics go a step farther and say there's an ascension. 40 days later, he ascended. And people saw him ascend into the heavens. He walked among people. Some say, I think the scripture talks about, or it's calculated, up to 500 people. People were raised from the dead during that time before the ascension, between resurrection and ascension. And when he ascended, 10 days later, the day of Pentecost was the power of the Holy Spirit as the birth was, the church was birthed and, and people were filled with the Holy Spirit. And now what was embodied through Jesus and later through 12 men and a variety of other people that were touched by Jesus now explodes in a day to 3,000 new converts coming to Jesus Christ. So Catholics look at it and they, they think we're, we're stopping at the resurrection. There is an ascension. So in our lives, there are deaths, deaths to certain things, burials of that, resurrection of that. Have you ever experienced anything like that? I'm talking about a template or a, a paradigm or a construct. There's death, burial, and resurrection. But there is also ascension. There are certain things in your life that have to ascend into heaven. <laughs> you gotta give it to the Lord. There are certain things, even after resurrection, where you're saying, Lord, this is mighty and powerful, but I cannot go to Pentecost. Pentecost cannot happen until I am out of here. Jesus himself said that. He said, it's better for you that I go. And so he ascends and then it opens the door for boom. There are things in your life that the ultimate goal is to give this unto God because it's gonna, got an explosive uh, aftermath to your releasing things to God and allowing things to go into a heavenly realm. Think about that for a minute. So I'm reading this. That is part of crossing over, which I mentioned a month ago. You come to the place where you've been in the wilderness. God has dealt with you in a deep way, but you're coming now to cross over into a new land, which is called the promised land. It's not called the promised land. We call it that, but it's the promised land. It's the land of promise. But it's something given to us by God that we have to learn to fight for. Some people, some Christians never cross over into that. Now we know the Jewish walk, and I say this all the time, but I'll repeat it again for repetition's sake. The Jewish walk out of Egypt, getting caught in bondage where they had great influence, great power, they lost it all, they got into bondage over a series of years, and they had to be rescued out of that bondage, delivered from that bondage. Biblically, it's seen as sin. Egypt is kind of a biblical equivalent of sin and bondage. And they get out, of course, they cross the Red Sea. That's known as baptism in the New Testament, where the Red Sea was seen as water baptism. That they went down into the water and came out on the other side. They didn't get wet, though we do. It's the only difference. Come out on the other side. We come on the other side. They're taking the long route to promises because God needs to capacitate us for the promises of your destiny. You gotta be shaped for it. And so you learn dependency upon God. You learn how to get water out of a rock. You learn how to, how to, how to get up in the morning and collect enough manna for the day 
And on day six, you collect enough for two days. I mean, it's this provision of God. You're walking through the wilderness, you're learning about provision. You're learning about the miracles of God. You're learning about spirit life, a walk in Jesus. But your ultimate goal is to cross into the land of promise, into Canaan, crossing the river. There'll be a river, and the river is not that great of a river. I've seen it. But in the flood zone, which is when they were crossing, it can get pretty wide. And so it becomes a mini Red Sea. There's almost like a, a second baptism of sorts where you've got to cross over to get the problem. You can look and see, you can send spies in there, you can hear about everything that's there, but somewhere you have to encounter giants and walled cities and learn how to bring those down. Over here you learned how to get daily sustenance, bread, drink, everything you need, but over here, over here you've got to deal with cities and giants and authority and strongholds and you learn a whole new set of warfare that you may never otherwise get. But what you're doing is you're dispossessing the enemy that could be a part of your past or whatever. You're dispossessing things out of there so that you may bring the kingdom of God. That's what we're called to do. But a, a lot of people do not cross over. So it says here that Joshua in verse two of chapter one of Joshua, of Joshua Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over. I looked in the Greek, the Hebrew, actually, in depth to find out what that really meant. You know what it means? Get up and go. Get up and go. Did you know it applies all through your life? Have you ever lost your get up and go? Cindy did the other day. I said, did you lose your get up and go? She said, I lost it somewhere. I just want to lay around all day. And, I, and we know what that's like. You lose your get up and go. It got up and went. But your get up and go in the spirit is something that actually you do. There, there's something in your life right now that you're facing. There's promises in front of you, whether they be financial, a future, a marriage, whatever it might be. But I want to focus just a few minutes in these last 10 minutes that I have here specifically on marriage, because this, this, this overriding template of crossing over will, will come up in every area of your life that there's a risk that you need to go up, in which they did, and put your foot into the water. It's not a testing of the water. You're actually putting in your foot in the water, thinking and knowing that everywhere my feet go, according to John, Joshua 1, is mine. Everywhere I go, everywhere my feet tread, goes. so the first, first exercise of your foot is touching into the water of separation and believing it's going to separate. And sometimes that means you arising and doing something. You've got to do something. A lot of Christians, I talk to my Lord, I'm just waiting on the Lord. I love that. I mean, I'm going to wait on the Lord. I'm an Isaiah 40 guy too. I mean, you know, those who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. You've renewed your strength. Your battery is overflowing. It's time to release, discharge some of this into territorial possessing. Getting what God has promised to you. It's been handed down that you would be a blessing, but not only a blessing, but those who bless you would be blessed and you will bless the whole nations. There's a call on every one of our lives to cross over, to cross over into something amazing in God. So arise Go over this Jordan, you and all the people land which I've given him to the children of Israel. Verse three, and every place the sole of your foot will tread upon you, I've given you, says the Lord. Now here's the deal. 
This is a part of the DNA of God. And I'm going to prove it really fast in the next eight minutes. God is a pursuing God. Yeah. Well, I know right now it's like, oh, of course, yeah, of course. But, but we don't think that. Sometimes we just think, oh, you know, he's out there somewhere. I feel, you know, I feel abandoned. I've talked with people. I've felt this way myself. At times where I feel a separation from God, like, Lord, where are you? Where are you in this time of need? I want you to know that if, if you're not feeling the presence of God, all you have to do is lean into him and he will be on it. It's proven scripturally over and over again. I love how Jesus, uh, what is it in Luke? I forget right now. I've got it in my notes somewhere. But uh, where he tells the parable of the three different uh, aspects and he's speaking to something specific. But let me tell you this. With regards to marriage, and then I'm gonna get to that. With regards to marriage, there is something of the nature of God in pursuing your mate. You do that before you're married. Some of us think once, you're, once you got the certificate, you know, the pursuit is over. I got my woman. I got my man. I'm good to go. I can go back to the sloppy person I was before I met him. <laughs> you know, how you present yourself after the wedding is, is, is a, it's pretty important. You don't want them to wake up to a different man the next morning. Same body, but different man. Who are you? I'm your sweetheart, honey. Oh, Lord. How long was this contract? Till death do us part. But there's something in the nature of God that is continually pursuing love. In, in 1 Corinthians uh, 14, 1 Corinthians 14, you know, that great sandwich we, I've talked about before is 12, 13, and 14. You know, in the middle of is a love chapter. And a little bit of that love chapter goes over into chapter 14 where he says this, pursue love and desire spiritual gifts, especially that you would prophesy. So what does he do? He puts forward first priority is love. It just came out of a full love chapter telling you what love looks like, how love applies, particularly with gifts, like whatever you're, who you are as a person, the gifts and things you have, is you can do those without love. But then the Bible also says, if you do these things and you don't have love, you have nothing. And so love is the generator of everything in your life. And there's this sense of pursuit that is upon you to go after it. I, mean, I, I had it with Cindy. I mean, God bless her, you know, she endured my pursuit. Uh, and I sent with Cindy and I, I mean, it's a, it was a crossing over. I mean, there were giants in the land and there were walled cities and, and security guards. <laughs> the giant in the land was a friend of mine named Jeff. He was 6'3". He was talking to her before I got to her. So I had to deal with that giant, got him out of there. <laughs> he was punished by uh, pastoring in San Diego now. And of course, I'm in Cleveland. But I got the woman. And so there was a giant. And there were walled cities called CBC, Central Bible College, with security guards. There were curfews. There was a dorm. I mean, there were, there were things that you had to work in a different culture uh, to make this thing happen. But the pursuit was on me. And fortunately, she had that pursuit too. And I, I know culturally and even biblically, we say that, well, men are the ones that pursue and 
women are the ones that wait for the pursuer, the white in shining armor. I, I just, I, I think the nature of God is in every one of us, male and female, that we're called to pursue love. It's okay. And I, I'm seeing it now in our, in our culture, expanding to a place of understanding that we mutually pursue one another. Not only until you get that wedding day, Josh. Okay, good. You're listening, right? Josh has a wedding coming up. Josh Witt, my son, in August. <laughs> he's back there looking around, those stuff. He said, Josh, and he's like, yeah. There's a pursuit going on right now. There's a day that the wedding will take place. But the pursuit has to continue after that day. When you lose the pursuit, you lose the sense and feel of love and passion, and it's a very slow death, and sometimes not so slow. And so you look at it, you go, okay, God is a God of pursuit. He has marked us specifically. He sent his son. Remember that Jesus, I, I referred to this in the offering earlier, but Jesus emptied himself, it says in Philippians chapter two, he took on the form of man. These are romantic understandings of how to connect with the one you love. Jesus was being sent down by his father, which is the way they did it in Hebrew culture, to engage, with a, to engage toward a marriage with the church, his chosen people. A special people set apart by God, us. This theme is throughout scripture. The theme of the pursuit of God, and that brings us actually to that, that three-pronged parable that I talked about earlier, this whole concept of God and the pursuit of God came to me in the 90s. You know, I've been a Christian many years, but I, I was just lacking that full understanding that I, I really thought it was pretty much on me. If I, if I went to church, God would encounter me. If I spent time in the presence of God, he would encounter me. And those are, those are true. But what I didn't count on is a lady coming up to me at Costco saying she had pain in her body. And so that the Lord actually is after me. We go after God, God goes after us. This is an amazing relationship. And in the Bible, it said over and over again, I remember when this came more comfortable to me, it was in 93, 1993, uh, a, a guy that I knew well back then, we haven't been in a lot of contact over years, his name was Dave Ruiz, he wrote a song. And in that song, it, it was called uh, True Love. And it was 93, you've got to understand, this was not 2021, uh, 22, <laughs> 2022. And so he writes this song. It becomes very popular in charismatic river-type churches and even, even bends a little bit into the evangelical side of things. But, you know, I, I wrote it down here because I remember I was with Mike Bickle. Mike Bickle, uh, uh, we were connected, IHOP and all that. It was pre-IHOP days, actually. Uh, Mike Bickle's a great prophetic uh, guy, apostolic man, blah, blah, in Kansas City. And I remember we were at one of his conferences. I was talking to Mike out in the lobby and the song that Dave Rose wrote was, wrote was being sung uh, in the, the big gathering, thousands of people in there. And I, I had been observing this song for a long time because I felt the awkwardness of it. And, and the song says this, it says, Jesus, uh, let me see, Jesus, you know true love. And it's, it's the verses. And, then it, and the chorus, the chorus was the problem. The chorus says, let me know the kisses of your mouth. Let me feel your embrace. Let me smell the fragrance of your touch. Let me see your lovely face. Women love this song. 
I mean, we'd sing it, and you, you know, you get to the course. Everyone knew the, after a while, everyone knew the course was coming. The course had, had like dynamite in it, and it would blow up your life. And so, you know, but you forget that, you know, and you start working through the verses. You get to the course, and I watch. I would look around and observe because I'm a guy, and I didn't really want to sing it either. But I look around, and I go, all the ladies go, let me know the kisses of your mouth. Let me feel your embrace. Take me away with you from this guy next to me. Even so, Lord, come, because I love you, Lord. I love you more than life. Now, I'd watch men. Men would get to it and they'd go, let me know. Feel your embrace. Sweetheart, I need to go to the restroom. I'll be right back. So that's where I was in the lobby talking to Mike Bickle about this song because it was kind of a, a controversial song in Christian world because it, 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 it just romanticize the relationship with God a little bit too much, particularly for men to be comfortable with. And uh, this guy comes burst, some guy comes bursting out, I don't know who he is, out of the sanctuary and he comes up. I don't even know if he knew who Mike was, that Mike was running this conference or not. He comes up to us and said, I just, I can't take that anymore. <laughs> Mike said, what's wrong? You know, some of that song they sing. Every time I come to one of these conferences, they sing that song, you know, I'm just not, it's just not right. And he says, well, it, it, what do you mean it's not right? He goes, well, it's just unbiblical. And Mike says, actually, it's, it's, Straight scripture out of Song, Song of Solomon. And he had this look on his face, the guy like, oh. And then he said, well, we shouldn't be singing about it. And I realized that capsulized the whole awkwardness of culture as we were taking the love of God to a little bit of a deeper level. And you can say, well, something ridiculous. Why it be so glad we've come so far since then? Well, then John Mark McMillan a few years ago came up with another song, How He Loves Me. Oh, how he loves us so Oh, how he loves us, how he loves us. So you remember that song? It was like runaway hit. I mean, John Mark was kind of a, a new artist, you know, emerging out of the, really the Morningstar uh, group down in North Carolina. And, uh, but they, he, got a, uh, he got a famous guy, I forget it was, uh, I forget who it was, but sang it and it, it went global. But so, so the song goes, oh, how he loves, that's a chorus, how he loves us. So it is so powerful because it builds up to this, oh, how he loves. And it's, it's great. It's like, oh, yeah, God loves me. I mean, it really ministered to people and, and delivered people, you know, that God loves me, that he would pursue me, that he's after me. Because we are his portion. He is our prize, drawn to redemption by the grace in his eyes. You remember this? If grace is an ocean, we're all sinking. And he said, ha, ha. So heaven meets earth. And then, and then there's the problem that came. When heaven meets earth like a sloppy wet kiss, my heart turns violently inside of my chest. I don't have time to maintain these regards when I think about the way. It was David Crowder who sang it. And it went worldwide. And we loved it. Again, the ladies were like, when heaven meets earth like a sloppy wet kiss that I haven't seen for the past 20 years. Oh, yeah, and uh, heart turns violently inside of my chest. I mean, there's something that we know about, but in our, we don't understand as being a nature of God. And so it got so controversial that when David Crowder did it, they changed the words, and it says, so when heaven meets earth like an unforeseen kiss. All right. But somehow the sloppy wet kiss crossed religious lines into another world, you know. 
And so you haven't seen a lot of those things lately, but I, I, I thought of it. I mean, reckless love was another reckless love caused controversy because it took God out of a category of how we, foresee, how we see God. That he would, he would break through, come through into our lives. God is wanting you as men and women in the love that you have in your marriage to break out of the confines and constructs of how you see God moving. Did you know your relationship in marriage is actually sacred? Now, a lot of people, that's a controversy with people. It's sacred. Did you know that your relationship with God in marriage is a picture of God's love for the church? I mean, it's, it's in Scripture. Um, let me just tell you this real quick, even though I'm over time, uh, text them Rachel or wherever you are and let them know that I'll be a few minutes late. Ryan will be fine. But Jesus went with Pharisees who believed weird things about life. Women were lesser. They'd say every day, I thank God I'm not a Gentile and I'm not a woman. That's what they would say in prayers every day. They were religious. And I'm not using that in the, in the best way dudes. And Jesus senses this because they're complaining. He says, he attracts sinners. He attracts tax collectors. I mean, just, I mean, remember when the woman touched him and anointed him with oil? They're like, does he not know who's touching? I mean, they, they really had huge walls, huge boundaries. And the problem is Jesus knew how to cross over into the land and dispossess religious thoughts I'm not talking about morality, I'm talking about religion, religious thoughts. And so he said, there was a shepherd. They hated shepherds. Shepherds were low life. So when talking to a shepherd, there was a shepherd. But each of these people are acting as, a, as an expression of the character or nature of God. And so a shepherd, you know, you don't use them to compare to who God is. And he has hundred sheep and one of them wanders off. It's in the song we sing. And he goes, he leaves 99 to go after the one. That was radical because in their belief, they did not believe that God would ever pursue somebody. You got to pursue God. And if you're lucky and you spin the wheel, red, black, red, black, red, black. Oh, I got it. Seven snake eyes. Shoo. I mean, it's, it's, it's a risk. It's a gamble. I mean, it's just how God is. It's not how God is. So Jesus says, he leaves the 99 and goes after the one. And when he finds the one, of course, the Pharisees are ready for it. Beat that sheep to death. We told you not to leave. How many times? And you left the 99. Did you not know there were not any other sheep around you? And you got caught in a thicket. It's exactly what happens when you leave the fold. Now give your money, say a few Hail Marys, and we'll let you go. Now Jesus finds the sheep, puts them on his shoulder and says, let's throw a party. In fact, in all three of the, all three of the stories, it ends with a party. It tells you something about the nature of God. He's party-oriented. By the way, he put the sheep on his back and said, let's go party. And he probably said, I know there's no record of this in Scripture, but he probably said, and we're not eating lamb. Evangelicals like telling the story. And he broke the legs of the sheep because that's how they learn. Well, I don't think so. He put him over his shoulder. He rejoiced. This sheep was lost and now he's found. And then it goes to a woman. A woman represents God. Do you know how irritating that was? 
Sounds like a movie a few years ago where a woman was the Holy Spirit and caused a lot of controversy, you know, in the church. Uh, so there's this woman. He's telling this to the Pharisees. He's finding every dig he can. And there was a woman who lost a precious coin. And she gets out to her lamp and her broom and she sweeps and holds the lamp, looking until she finds it. When she finds it, she throws a party. He says, I had a coin that was lost and now it's found. See, he's teaching. Parables are meant to teach on the kingdom of God, its ways, and the character of God and who he is. He's saying, Pharisees, this is really what God's like. He goes after the one, leaves the 99. Well, we're not going to do that. Exactly. He moved through women. Well, that can't happen. Well, he does that. In fact, in this case, we're going to picture him as the woman that loses a coin and goes and finds it and brings it back. He's that kind of guy. And the third one, he doesn't go after. Who's with a son, the prodigal son. He waits. And when the son begins to come forth, the Bible says the father ran after him. Now, again, Pharisees are going, oh, I'm going to, yeah, we're going to run after him. He's going to have to serve in our house for seven years. Even though he's a son, he's got to serve for seven years. Now, instead, the father runs out. The is one of my favorite verses as it's interpreted in the Greek. And he leapt upon his neck. They rolled in the dirt together. And you can imagine the laughing, the crying. I mean, his son smelled like pigs. He'd been in a pigsty caring for pigs and eating their food and thought, I'll go back to my father's house. So many people approach God like this. Even if I'm just a slave, a servant, you know, and the Lord says, nonsense, you're a son who is lost and is now found. And he says, put a robe on his back, put a ring on his finger, put sandals on his feet. These are all signs of sonship and royalty before God. The Pharisees couldn't stand it. In fact, after that, they begin to plot for his own death. Why? Because he's, he's crossed over into a land that we're not familiar with. It is the promises of God. Let's all stand together if we could. So in a marriage, what do you do? You leave the 99. It's God kind of love. Treat the relationship as a, as a precious coin. It's worth, it's got value to it. Men to women, women to men. It's what we do in a relationship. It's a dance between God and the church. Listen to this in Ephesians, I'll close with this. For this reason, a man shall leave his father. We call this leave and cleave because it rhymes. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined, literally that means to cleave, to glue, to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. Paul says, this is a great mystery. In the Greek, it says mega mystery. It's a mega mystery. But I speak. So he's talking about a man leaving his mother and father out of the basement over to his wife. It gets glued together with her. He's not just speaking of the physical, although that's part of it. It's speaking of a spiritual bonding that becomes representation of Christ in the church. He said, I speak concerning Christ in the church. It's a type of the union of Christ to the church and it is comparable. A marriage in Christ should be a beacon of hope to everyone around. You don't complain to everyone about your marriage. A good way to kill it. Instead, you speak the highest of your spouse yeah, men are called to love their wives. Wives are called to respect their husbands. It's just different forms of love. It's all agape. 
You lay down your own life. They can, a, a proper marriage in Christ is really evangelistic. A good marriage in Christ makes people want to get married and to find the right man, to find the right woman. A man and woman pursuing love in one another is one of the most beautiful things in the world. I wish I could go to Song of Solomon right now. It's just so funny. <laughs> it's so powerful about God's pursuit. But let me just tell you this. It's, it's the story of God pursuing you. And you're in a walled house and he comes down looking through the lattice. How awkward. The Bible says he goes skipping and jumping in the hills. That always challenged me. Bickle really expanded my understanding in all this back in the late 90s when he's teaching out the Song of Solomon so much. But I thought, does God skipping, is that in your personal theology and construct of who God is? I mean, you imagine God going and jumping? Why? He's coming to see you. Uh, that's just, I, I'm uncomfortable with that. Because he, he didn't see what happened yesterday. I, you know, I lost my temper. I, uh, he's coming to your house. And when he does, he has encouragement. He stands outside and goes, my love, come out. It's very awkward. Come out, come out, wherever you are. Flowers are out here. He loves flowers. Time of singing has come. Peace. It's cool. Time of singing comes, the voice of the turtle dove is heard in the land. He's, he's pulling you out of your hiddenness. This crossing the river in a different way. He says, give a good smell. Rise up, my love, my fair one. Come away. Awkward, awkward, awkward. Oh, my dove, in the clefts of the rock, in the secret places of the cliffs, let me see your face. Let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet. Your face is lovely. Awkward, awkward, awkward. But it's important. What are your children seeing? What's your legacy? What's your personal testimony? Let it be agape love with the one that you've joined with and see God do amazing miracles in your, in your attempt, which is required of God, to mimic the very nature of God. Thank you for listening to our Sermon of the Week. You can help us reach others by investing today at BethelCleveland.com slash give.